The Michael Duke Show. I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. Where's my rifle? Where's my gun? This is for Biden. This is for Biden. Firearms Friday. Uh, Firearms of Friday. Good morning, my friends. Welcome to the... Uh, well, the best day of the week for a multitude of reasons, uh, mostly because uh, we get to talk about uh, my favorite topic today. That's right. Uh, today is the day we dive into the Second Amendment and discussions of gun rights and uh, of a gun nature and everything else. It is Firearms Friday here on the program. Uh, we're broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this your favorite radio station and or FM translator. And, of course, live around the world on the Internet on our website at MichaelDukeShow.com, where the live stream is, as well as the podcast links and links to our <clears throat> different uh, broadcasts on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, and so much more. How are you folks doing? Are you ready for this Friday? Um, first, I guess I should mention to those of you, I save this uh, uh I say I save this uh, for you here this morning. Um, for those of you who live in the South Central area from Houston, Talkeetna, all the way down uh, through the Matsu into Anchorage, freezing rain and snow possible for today. If you're driving in or getting ready to drive in, you might want to take a little extra time because there's been very, very little precipitation the last uh, few weeks. But uh, rain uh, started falling last night and continued, uh, and it's going to continue until about 7 a.m. this morning, according to the Weather Service. And it will likely freeze, creating a glazed donut effect over uh, all the roadways. Uh, conditions are expected to be slickest on the Glen Highway near the Palmer Hay Flats, Meadow Lake to Point McKenzie, East Anchorage, and more. Uh, it should warm up this afternoon, and that should go away. But if there's still wet on the road uh, here tonight, that could be with uh, more ice and snow accumulating. So <clears throat> be cautious out there. Be cautious and pay close attention to what's going on. On the program today, we're going to go over, well, a bunch of different stories. But we're going to start off the show with a bang with one of our favorite writers uh, over at Reason Magazine, Jacob Sullum, who is a senior editor at Reason Magazine. He has been writing uh, prolifically. Um, there's there another word that can go? He's been writing a lot on uh, on the topic of the Second Amendment and guns. Uh, and in fact, uh, the story that I want to talk to you about is, I mean, it's already almost a week old, uh, and he's written a couple more, and we've some other details have come out, including the fact that it turns out that the uh, Lewiston shooter 
had actually been involuntarily committed this summer. And that information didn't get passed down to the uh, FBI and the Knicks background check. And I mean, there's so many problems here. So we, we, we may or may not discuss that. Today's topic with Jacob Sellum is going to be on the uh, uh, California assault weapons ban that was struck down by uh, St. Benitez. That's Judge Benitez there in California. And uh, how it may face an en banc panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But the headline from Jacob's article reads, It's hard to see how the Ninth Circuit can manage to uphold California's weapons uh, ban. And we're going to talk about that, well, right now, because he joins us this morning. I wanted to give ourselves a little bit of time uh, today because there is so much to discuss. Jacob Sellum from Reason Magazine with us this morning uh, to discuss. Oh, did it again. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to ask you to reconnect because I could see your picture in the green room here. But no, oh, there it is. Never mind. Don't 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 do a thing. Don't do it. Man, I love All that. Right. I love that shirt. Man, it feels so tropical and, and nice. Uh, Jacob Shellam, Reason Magazine, our guest here on the program this morning, uh, on to discuss it. How are you, my friend? How's uh, how's life in the in the big uh, in the big city, wherever you are? I'm in Dallas. Uh... Things are pretty good. Warmer than where you are. Yeah, no, we, a little bit of a winter weather advisory this morning uh, for rain and ice and all that kind of stuff. But we have, I will say that we've dodged a bullet on snow where I live. Usually it's snowed by now and stuck, uh, but uh, we haven't had any snow that's stuck so far. So I feel like I've kind of dodged the big winter bullet. It's coming, but, you know, we're, we're dealing with it. Um, all right. Uh, so, Jacob, uh, let's get started on this article. This was a great piece of news. Uh, for people who are pro-gun in California when this uh, uh, when this uh, decision came down. But, of course, we know that the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, the Ninth Circuit, uh, or Ninth Circus as we like to call it here, is not necessarily a friend to the Second Amendment, so there's a lot of discussion. Give me, give me some of the details of what happened here and where it goes from here before we get into the article. Okay, so what happened most recently um, is that last weekend, the Ninth Circuit uh, vacated, I'm sorry, stayed the uh, decision uh, that Benitez issued last month, finding that the uh, California assault weapon ban was unconstitutional. They're going to hear that case. Previously, you might recall, Benitez uh, a few years ago had already said this law was unconstitutional. Uh, That went up to the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit vacated uh, that decision and said, reconsider this in light of what the Supreme Court said last June in in Bruin, uh, because we now have a different test we're supposed to be applying, uh, a a test based on historical evidence, trying to find uh, relevant analogs that are similar to uh, the law you're defending. So he did it over again, unsurprisingly reached the same conclusion that was unconstitutional, but he went in into a detailed analysis of the evidence presented by the state where they're trying to come up with examples from preferably around the time the Second Amendment was ratified or around the time the 14th Amendment was ratified and, and, and made the Second Amendment applicable to the states evidence of, of laws that are analogous to what California has done, which is to ban this broad cate- category, mostly of, of rifles, but also some handguns that meet certain arbitrary criteria. Um, and the state, um, as they 
have done before. They did this in the case involving California's ban on on so-called large capacity magazines. Uh, the judge says, give me the best evidence you've got. And they gave, give him a list of over 300 laws going from the 14th century into the 20th century. And it's just kind of a hodgepodge of, of not necessarily relevant statutes, but like basically these are all the gun control laws we could find. We call that, um, the, we call that the shotgun effect. I mean, not, yes, to, not I to be too context, funny. But, especially, yeah. especially it's appropriate to call the shotgun approach. Um, and so he winnows through these, um, and he did ask the state, what's your best evidence? You know, which of these do you think is, is the closest example? And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, they said that laws regulating the use of trap guns were the closest historical uh, analogs. And what's weird about that is that trap guns, as Benitez points out, it's not a particular kind of gun. It's a way of using a gun. It's a way of setting a, gu a gun up to go off automatically. And so this this sometimes this was used actually to hunt game. Sometimes it was used against intruders. Right. So you might uh, set up a gun at the edge of your property or maybe even at the perimeter of your house. Um, and it's supposed to shoot, you know, people who, who aren't supposed to be there, shoot trespassers. Right. Um, so several uh, states said that was not cool. And uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. And and so that's what this what California says is the thing that that's uh, most similar to the state's assault weapon ban. And it really is not very similar at all, especially in as much it, as it does not, first of all, it's not banned possession of any particular kind Fire, of gun. Right. And that's, if, you, know, being, you would want something like that. Obviously we're not gonna say, oh, there were no AR-15 bans in the 19th century because right. there were no AR-15s. So that's not fair, but it's reasonable to say, give me something that's analogous. And then they cited a few other laws as they did in the, in the, in the magazine case. Uh, that don't seem relevant. They cite uh, regulations about how you can store gunpowder, which has nothing to do with crime prevention. This was a fire prevention measure. Right. Uh, and it does not seem analogous to saying, here's a category of guns you can't own. They cited rules about uh, bladed weapons, which is getting closer because at least it's a kind of weapon. But we're supposed to be looking for a tradition of, according to the Supreme Court, tradition of firearm regulation. Obviously, these are not firearms. Um, to my mind, actually, the, the closest they came, even though they didn't emphasize it much, was was a ban on uh, carrying cane guns, which I think Alabama had one. There might have been one or two other states. Um, and, you know, here the idea was that uh, this is sneaky. Right. It's you sneaky. Know, it's, it's, not, yeah. it's, it's the same idea that 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 gave rise to these bans on concealed carry that, that, that a bunch of states enacted, you could still openly carry. But concealed carry was considered, you know, ungentlemanly, dishonorable, sneaky. That was sort of the idea. Same thing with cane guns. I think this is, you know, it doesn't look like a gun, but it is. Um, so the first thing about that is that these were not commonly used, cane guns. These were not, in, in, you know, in wide use for, for uh, lawful purposes. But secondly, it wasn't actually a ban on possession. It was a ban on carrying them. And to my mind, I think that's the closest, right. most analogous thing. Well, they didn't actually play that up much. They talked about a bunch of other things that don't seem really uh, at all similar to California's law. Well, they tried to hang their hat on laws that had racial basis for carrying and some other things as if 
they were holding him up and saying, see, we did these laws before and, and yeah, you know, it was just that's fine. Not, and I'm just like, what? You, you, you couldn't be yeah. black and carrying a gun. You couldn't be Catholic. And I right. mean, they were throwing all these other, and I'm like, that's the law you're holding up and saying, this is the example of why we want to follow it. Are you insane? Yeah. It's not a good look for the government when they resort to that. And they've done this repeatedly. They did this in the cases involving bans on gun possession by illegal drug users, where at least that was kind of like more seemingly relevant because what they're saying is illegal drug users are dangerous. Here are some other groups that have been considered dangerous in the past. This is a precedent. Of course, what that really shows is that you don't want to trust the government to decide who's dangerous <laughs> and right. decide who's allowed to own gun. I think that's what that historical evidence shows. But they brought it up because they brought up everything. In the in, in the assault weapon uh, ban case, they also brought up, uh, oh yeah, and and by the way, look, the government used to say, not just slaves, but free black people could not own guns, or they could only uh, have guns with with you know government permission, which was hard to get. Um, you know, Native Americans, uh, Catholics, at certain points. Uh, um, I don't know if they brought up uh, Tories. Uh, or not this time around, but right. the, the, the basic idea being here's like every regulation we can find historically, even if if a bunch of these things would be clearly unconstitutional today, we still think that it tends to support the idea that you can ban these particular weapons. Well, and Benitez is like that doesn't really make any sense because the whole reason that that those laws ex is existed is that you know black people were not considered to be full citizens. Right, slaves certainly were not considered to be citizens at all. Black people uh, were, did not, were not considered to have the same rights as white people. That's precisely why they were subject to these specifically targeted laws. Right. This wasn't about this. At this point, it wasn't even about, uh, you know, discriminatory enforcement. It's about laws that say on their face. Black people can't have guns. Right. Um, and and let, I mean, sometimes it's unless you, they get, you know, a license from the justice of the peace. Right. Unless they get permission. Uh, so so. What that has to do, it really does not seem to have anything to do with the law that California is defending. So this was the problem for California. And now the problem for the Ninth Circuit, where, let's be frank, most judges of the Ninth Circuit really want to uphold this law. Oh, I think yeah. that's oh, accurate yeah. oh, to say. Yeah. Um, but how will they do it? So they have to do it, I think. They're not going to say these are not in common use for lawful purposes. How can you say that about guns that are, you know, there are, according to the, the state, witness there are you know 24 over 24 million in circulation uh, according to a recent survey about 30 percent of gun owners have owned uh rifles that would be covered by california's ban so they clearly are in common use for lawful purposes they're almost never used to commit murder right even right, though yeah. that's the state's old emphasis <laughs> yeah they they're that even just the whole category of rifles you know which includes things that are not covered by california's law I think Benita said it was uh, accounted Four, for 464. 464, uh, yeah. All, all long guns, not just yeah, assault rifles. All, all, oh, yeah, yeah. So shotguns squirrel too, guns, yeah. squirrel guns, hunting right. rifles, lever actions, all long guns, 464 deaths. So in a even year. If, we, if we pretend, and that's nationwide. So even if we pretend all of those guns would have been covered by California's ban, what that means is that nearly all of the, the rest, all the rest, meaning nearly all of them, um, are used for some kind of lawful purposes. And what are those purposes? Well, when you ask gun owners, here's what they say. They say, you know, home, def home defense is a popular response, recreational shooting, 
hunting. Right. Uh, some people say defense outside the home. Um, right. So these we, we know they're using them for not for crime, but for these lawful purposes. So it seems very hard to deny that. I'm not sure the Ninth Circuit is going to try to deny that. So then the next step is, you know, what's the relevant historical evidence? And I guess they could say, you know, cane guns. That's good enough. Well, <laughs> um, I, I but, want it. But, I, but I, then you still have to let people at least own them. Right. That well, that's the, the thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I, it, it'll be interesting to see what they resort to, I guess. Uh, I want to I continue with this because uh, Benitez was exhaustive on this 79-page decision, which if you haven't read it, I posted it up last week. It's amazing. We're going to continue to talk about this with Jacob Selim from Reason Magazine. It is the Michael Duke Show. It's Firearms Friday. Back with more right after this. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, we are in the commercial break right now. Jacob Sullum is our guest, Reason Magazine. Uh, I don't want to repeat too much on the radio, but I, I got to say that this, when I first went through this, I saw the analysis and then I went and read the decision for myself. I think that there was a reason that Benitez was so exhaustive about this. And, and I think that that's going to play into what we're going to talk about here in a minute before we get there. But let's move on just for a moment. We'll change gears uh, for the podcast listeners um, on this Lewiston thing. Have you seen the latest reporting on this thing for the Lewiston deal where this guy, I mean, the chain of failures we, we've talked about in the past, the chain of failures in mass shootings. You know, we talk about the Parkland shooter had, you know, over 20 interactions with local law enforcement and over a dozen interactions with the FBI before he went crazy and shot up Parkland. We had the Sutherland Springs shooter had a dishonorable discharge. None of that stuff was ever put forward onto his record. And so he was able to buy a gun lawfully, even though the Air Force didn't do it. They ended up paying $230 million in wrongful death suit out to the victims of that one because they fell down and envied the job. We can just go after case after case. The Naval Yard shooter had been uh, he'd been chastised and and uh, and charged at one point with discharging a weapon on the base before he went crazy on the Naval Yard shooting and everything. Um, we see this time after time after time where it's a failure of the enforcement of the existing laws. And now we find out that this guy was involuntarily committed. He'd had contact with the police. They had they knew what was going on. Some of his fellow guardsmen were local sheriffs in his community and had seen his behavior firsthand, I mean, at what point do you just go, this is a failure of the system, not of the law we have in place, but a failure of the system? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, one of the criticisms that we heard after these shootings was that uh, Maine's uh, laws were too weak, and that's why this happened. And in particular, that its so-called yellow flag law was weak compared to the more traditional nowadays red flag law where i mean these basically these are laws where you can get a court order that says this guy can't have guns for a certain period of time and they have different laws have different standards maine's law is is relatively demanding compared to some of these other laws in terms of what it takes to get a court order but it absolutely could have been invoked in this case 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, could have. What, ha what happens is uh, the police start with probable cause to believe somebody is mentally ill. And I'm using scare quotes around that because I don't want to get into exactly what that means. But uh, mentally ill and because of this condition uh, uh, may pose a threat to himself or others. They take him into protective custody. So he's already in custody at that point. And then they get an assessment from a, a medical practitioner. Um, does this guy seem dangerous? Uh, a I think it's a, li a likelihood of danger. Um, and if the medical practitioner says yes, then the police are required to go to a judge, get an order, and this is a, an order without a hearing. So the initial order is without a hearing, um, lasts for uh, up to up to two weeks, um, and then after that, there's a hearing, and then if the if the state can provide clear and convincing evidence of a danger, then they can get uh, get the order extended for up to a year, right? So so that process could have been followed in this right. case and, and that's actually noted, that's noted actually, there was lots of evidence uh yeah that this guy was was you know behaving in, in a weird way seemed paranoid uh, was talking about violence was acting violently in some cases right um and in fact he was um picked up by the police in new york state when he was training um in new york state um and because he was behaving so erratically uh, they took him to initially to the w hospital west point and then they took him to a, a another psychiatric hospital and he spent two weeks there they did an evaluation right and they treated uh, him i mean that was the thing it, that was the involuntary commitment that's the yeah so so but it's it's a bit the fact that he was released after the two weeks suggests that at least at that point I'm not sure what they did with him while he was there, but at least at that point, he was not deemed he was not deemed to meet the state's criteria right. for involuntary commitment for longer for longer than those two weeks. Um, but that doesn't have to be the end of the matter because you know under Maine's law, it's not required that you meet the criteria for involuntary hold, commitment hold, even under Maine law. Hold on a second, hold on. We're we're rejoining the radio here. Five seconds. We're going to circle back around to this segment, the Michael Duke Show, okay. Common Sense Radio. Here we go. What the hell is an assault weapon? You know, if we could just figure out how to get all of the murder guns and the attack guns and not keep selling those to people and just sell protection guns, I think that would be great and solve a lot of problems. Does this mean that if we hurt your feelings, you'd consider the Michael Dukes show assault radio? <laughs> okay, we can live with that. Here's Michael Dukes. Yep protection guns it's all i got none of those bad murder guns it's all i i i look for the i look for the tag that says this is a protection gun uh joining us this morning jacob shalom reason magazine senior editor for reason talking about the uh decision by judge benitez in california to uh to basically s smash down the assault weapons ban which is currently on a stayed uh is being stayed by the ninth circuit overall um, I have to say this, uh, uh, Jacob, Benitez was so exhausted. I mean, first he asks for laws from a specific period of time, essentially, you know, 1774 through 1800, uh, you know, when the 14th Amendment uh, was in place. They give him a bunch of laws from over a 350 year period. He could have just dismissed all those because they weren't in that time frame but instead he went through and he piecemealed and he just he destroyed their arguments 
uh, law by law, you know, instance and by instance, he took their 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 uh, expert witness to task and and just kind of tore him apart. It was it, it was an exhaustive this thing. Seventy nine page decision was exhaustive on all this. And I think that there may have been a reason for that, because, like you said, the Ninth Circuit is going to have a very difficult time dancing around the Brune decision, you know, in lawful use. I mean, all these other kind of phrases and issues. Um, and I think he did a yeoman's job in trying to basically hem them in a bit uh, on this. Uh, and again, making some really amazing uh, statements. I mean, when you talked about the long guns and only 464 deaths from long guns, including assault rifles, but that includes all different kinds of long guns. He actually said he pulled out the calculator and said, statistically, that means that the death rate, you know, in America is point zero 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 one eight six percent for, you know, all long guns, not just assault rifles, uh, which means that ninety nine point nine nine. You know, I mean, you just start going through it. And, and it's amazing. It was this really is a damning um, kind of uh, implication on this law. Yeah, I mean, and the, the crucial thing after Bruin is that the Ninth Circuit is not allowed to do what it used to do and what, what a bunch of other federal courts used to do, which is to say, you know, they called it a two-step analysis. Essentially, it was just an interesting interest-balancing test because they would say, is this conduct covered by the Second Amendment? And then they often would say, just for the sake of argument, let's say it is. But now we get onto the real, the meat of this, which is, uh, yes, these people complain of this burden, but what does the state say? This is the state's interest, and we're going to balance them and decide which is more important. So in the case of, of assault weapon bans, uh, how this is always done is the state wants to prevent mass shootings or it wants to reduce the number of people killed during mass shootings. Uh, this is a, a very compelling interest, right? And on the other side, you've got these people who say they have legitimate uses for these guns, but there are lots of other guns they could own. And so who cares? <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was how the analysis would go. Now, they're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, they have to instead apply this historical test. And I, and I think it's going to be tricky. I mean, they, they might go to the knives. They might say, that's enough of a precedent. Um, Benitez, by the way, pointed out that even though you don't, obviously, you didn't have exactly the same guns in the 19th century, around the time of the 14th Amendment, you did have repeating rifles, which had the, uh, were fed through a tubular device, and they could file, uh, fire repeatedly, accurately, quickly. That seems analogous to what you know, California is talking about now. And yet, even though these were very widely used, there's not a single example of a law that that either banned them or restricted them. Um, so it's not so crazy, right? I mean, some people say this this historical this is unreasonable because you know technology has evolved, but it, but you can find things that are uh, uh, you know relevantly analogous. And the absence of the statute that's really the thing that is is um, I think most persuasive is that there were all kinds of situations where the government could have enacted laws. That are that are you know analogous to what California did, but just didn't. Um, and you don't see really anything like. I mean, there are there's there are a few laws in, already in the the twenties uh, and thirties regulating machine guns, uh, but that's really too late to illuminate 
the original understanding of the right. Second Amendment. Right. Um, and then and then after that, there's you see nothing like this literally until 1989 when California passed the original version of this law. And then other states copied them in the 90s. Um, and and up until then, you could have, you know, this rifle with these with these features that they don't like, you know, the tele telescoping or folding stocks or, you know, pistol grips or threaded barrels or what, you know, uh, 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 flash suppressors. Right. This is all. Perfectly legal throughout the country. Right. Right. So this is a very recent development, historically speaking, and it really does not seem to be relevantly similar to anything that happened before. Now, as you point out, the Ninth Circuit, which has a history of being, um, well, anti-gun, essentially. I mean, the, the, the overall uh, panel of judges on the Ninth Circuit is definitely not a Second Amendment friendly court by any strange stretch of the imagination. And they have a habit of... Uh, basically holding on and delaying cases that they don't want to see go before the Supreme Court through court actions and not moving forward. Now, they could potentially, I suppose, do that. But as you said, Benitez has been so exhaustive. The Bruin decision has been so decisive that they're going to have a very hard time justifying and going back and saying, oh, no, California was right the whole time after Benitez, again, just dismantles every argument that they have on there. Um, it, 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 it's going to be a very, very tough road to hoe for them. Yeah, and I, I think in terms of the historical evidence, it will be. It's not to say that they're not going to try. Um, but let's be honest about this. I mean, the reason that they want to, they're inclined to try to do that is they think this is good policy, right? And that's not, you know, under Bruin, that is absolutely not the constitutional issue, whether it's good policy or not. But perhaps what Benita says with respect to that and his decision might have, uh, you know, finally some impact on the Ninth Circuit, which is to say this, aside from the constitutional issue, this just doesn't make sense. The distinctions that California is drawing between guns, which are allowed and which are not allowed. And he gives a couple of examples of, you know, here's a here's a pistol. It's perfectly legal, except if it has a threaded barrel. Right. What the exactly. hell does that have to do with preventing violent exactly or, or or mass shootings in particular? You, and he gave the example, which is often cited, of uh, the Ruger Mini 14 rifle, which in one configuration with the fixed stock and without any of these other features that they've prohibited, that's perfectly fine. But once you start adding those features, same gun, op, you know, the, the basic operation of it is exactly same, the same. Yeah. Same gun, same it, bullet, it, same velocity, it, same killing power, yeah, same everything. Cosmetically yeah, so it's, different. It's Yeah, it's it's uh, not, there's no functionally important distinction whether you have these features or not. And yet one, in one configuration, it's illegal and the other one, it's it's fine. Right, so that get go, and then of course the stuff we mentioned already about how rarely these guns are actually used uh, in, in to commit murder. Um, even in mass shootings, the most commonly used weapon is a handgun. Um, and if you, even if you can make them all magically disappear, people who want to commit these crimes will have plenty of equally lethal alternatives, right? So now, I say all this because, not because it's constitutionally relevant, because under Bruin, it's not. But if maybe some of that sinks in with the Ninth Circuit, they won't be so determined, you know, based on the assumption that this is good policy to try to make the historical case. 
Right. I don't know. I, I you but, know, maybe if, if you still believe that this is good policy after all of these years, I'm not sure that anything can dissuade you. But. Well, again, because, again, they keep making the rational argument that this will save that this will stop all these things, that this will stop this and this will stop that. But again, when the instances of the uses of these firearms, specific firearms, is so incredibly low down to, you know, point four zeros after the decimal kind of decision. And then Benitez even manages to mention the DGU, the defensive gun uses, which is another amazing situation, uh, which, again, has not been really talked about in many court cases. The fact that there's somewhere between 900,000 and over 2 million defensive examples of defensive gun use where guns have been used defensively, in most instances, never even firing a single shot um, and said on this balancing act, you've got 0.000186% on the one side. And on the other side, you've got 2 million instances of being used to actually prevent crime. Again, a, a very exhaustive uh, uh, look at what's going on. And, you know, the Ninth Circuit's going to do what the Ninth Circuit's going to do, but they are going to have to really jump through some hoops to make this fly from their perspective. I think so. Um, the, in terms of defensive gun uses, um, again, keep in mind, not relevant, except to the extent <laughs> it's not constitutionally relevant, except to the extent that it illustrates that these guns are in in uh, common use for lawful purposes. Right. Well, it, it uh, flips but, their but argument. Cite, it flips their argument did, because that's what they were arguing about is that, oh, these guns have no other reasonable right. purpose. Right. Right. And obviously that's not true because, you know, they're they're owned by, uh, uh, t you know, 30% of gun owners have owned them. You know, tens of millions are in circulation. These are obviously not primarily used to commit mass murder. I mean, that's just obvious on the face of it. Um, but but he but it, but he does cite, and this goes this really goes to the the policy argument, I guess, specific examples of people who use guns that are that would be illegal in California to defend themselves against uh, multiple criminal assailants, right? So this is a rejoinder to people to say. Who say these guns are not even appropriate for self-defense? Uh, nobody needs them for self-defense. And now you can say, well, did they need a folding stock to, you know, right, right, <laughs> in right. that context? And maybe they did. Maybe it helped them store it for self-defense in the home. Whatever you can talk about the specific features, but the point is that you have these guns that people do use self-defense. Typically, they don't fire rounds, but in these cases, they had to fire rounds. Um, and you ask, is this, you know, can this gun be used for, uh, self-defense? It absolutely can. And in these cases, it absolutely um, was. Yeah, it, absolutely. Yes, it was. So, so, you know, uh, that's, and, and that's relevant, uh, constitutionally and to the extent that it establishes, you know, lawful uses, but it also, I think more relevant to the policy argument and, uh, and, and the question of, you know, whose interests prevail and the way he puts it is. Obviously, it's horrifying that people are killed by mass murderers, and and we remember those people. We talk about those events over and over again. But these other cases where people use uh, these same guns in self-defense, possibly saving several lives, we don't, we tend not to hear about that. Jacob uh, Selim, uh, Reason Magazine, our guest. We're going to continue with him here in just a moment. Well, that is super loud. Uh, we're going to go over here. Um, we're going to be back with him in just a moment. We're going to talk a little bit here on the other side about his one of his latest articles, which talks about the yellow flag law in uh, Maine, which is not a red flag law state. They have a law that's similar, but not quite as 
abusive to due process for the citizens, but even that law has kind of been ignored or not fulfilled 100% on this case, uh, which we're going to get into here in just a moment with Jacob Sullum, senior editor, Reason Magazine. We'll be back with more right after this. Our light, our guide, and our trusted friend. Okay, Jacob Sellum, uh, our guest here on Reason Magazine, uh, from Reason Magazine. Um, Jacob, I mean, I, I dude, I, I read through uh, the probably 85% of this decision, and it was just... To me, it was eye-opening to see a guy finally tell the government, and in this case, the government of the state of California, that essentially, in a polite way, you guys, your guys' arguments all suck, essentially, is what he's saying. I mean, you know, he just goes after point by point and says, we know you're trying to do the one thing, but you're really just, you know, you're not helping, essentially, in the long run. Uh, when you read through this, I mean, were you, was it just like kind of one pleasant surprise after another in your mind? Did you see this as being kind of a, I mean, I don't know if I would say landmark uh, decision or or opinion, but definitely an eye-opening one, uh, if nothing else. Well, it was not surprising to me because the evidence California presented here is is essentially the same evidence they presented in defending the state's limits on magazine capacity. They basically have a list of laws <laughs> of over 300 of them and they just cough that up whenever a law is challenged right and and furthermore uh these are similar to laws that the government cites um in the cases involving uh, restrictions on on uh gun possession based on your status so you're a legal drug user or you have a felony record or um, subject to a, a protective order. That case is, is, is before the Supreme Court right now. Uh, whether, you know, the fact that, that, that a protective order was issued against you is, is good enough evidence to, for you to lose your Second Amendment rights. Um, they, they, they basically cite uh, the same laws over and over again. I was just writing yesterday about a challenge to the Gun-Free School Zones Act. Um, and in that case, the government was a bit more focused. You know, they right. didn't talk about trap guns. They right. didn't talk yeah, about yeah. cane guns and 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 right or dirk knives. Uh, but they they cited basically the tradition of uh, schools being sensitive places. And they do. And they had first of all a bunch of university policies, some from a couple from the 17th century, which actually by private universities then by state universities in the early 19th century. All right, so these are rules that say students can't have guns on campus. Um, then they cite a bunch of state laws that say, uh, for the most part, no guns in, in uh, school rooms. And that's pretty much it. Um, so the problem here, of course, is that you're saying either students can't have guns on campus or you're saying Nobody should bring guns into a schoolroom. Nobody's saying you can't have guns within 1,000 feet <laughs> or anything like that. Right, of, of right. School, school, school property, not even a school building, but within, within 1,000 feet of school property. And, of course, these schools are throughout, throughout the country, so there are yeah. lots of places that fall into these zones. With this houses around them. I mean, you're talking about within a quarter mile of the school, almost yeah. a quarter mile of the school, you can't have a gun. 
you got houses all over the place and private residences yeah, so, and everything else. Yeah. And there is, so there's an exception under the statute. If you're on, you might be relieved to hear. If you're in your own home or on your own property, it doesn't apply. This case involved a guy who was afraid of a neighbor he had a dispute with. He was like patrolling the front of his house with his rifle. And everybody conceded he, that was perfectly legal. Whether it was advisable or not was another question, but it was legal. But once he stepped from his property onto the public sidewalk in front of his house, because he lived across the street from an elementary school, that became a federal felony. That's what the government said, right? So that's so. But in trying to justify this under Bruin, uh, the prosecutors end up citing a bunch of statutes that do have to do. They uh, they're more relevant than the the, the laws that California is citing um, right. in in the in the assault weapon case. But but still, there's this crucial distinction where you're saying, okay, it's well established that the schools themselves are sensitive places, but we see nothing here about you know, building a zone around a school where people can't have guns. Right. Uh, the the one law that applied outside of the buildings was one that said you couldn't fire a gun in the immediate vicinity of a school building. Whereas, you know, this, the federal statute says you may not possess a gun uh, if, it, if it's unlocked, um, within, not just in the immediate vicinity, but within 1,000 feet of, of school grounds, right? So these, I mean, Obviously, you can quibble over what's close enough, but these seem relevantly different, you know, right. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, this is going to be the challenge in every one of these cases for the government to try to, to make this case. How, um, how offensive, you know, is I it? think. Yeah, How offensive is it that the government keeps uh, coming back and they keep throwing up? And in multiple cases, not just this California case, they've thrown up these laws that are like Jim Crow style laws where blacks can't have guns or Catholics couldn't have guns. The Irish couldn't have guns that, you know, again, does it go all the way back to the Tories not having guns? I mean, it just seems like that's a pretty offensive uh, idea that they're holding these laws up as a reason why we should have new laws today that are similar. I just it's mind blowing. All right. 15 well, seconds to me it seems the, the opposite that this is why we we don't want to trust the government to make those decisions. exactly this should be exactly the lesson learned there the government should have nothing to do with something like that jacob Sellum, our guest reason magazine the michael duke show here we go the michael duke show not your daddy wait sorry not your daddy Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio <laughs> Whew, i was scared for a second Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. That's right. It's not your daddy's talk radio. Although I did see my daddy in the chat room earlier. Hi, dad. How you doing? Uh, welcome back to the program. Jacob Sullum, Reason Magazine. Uh, our guest. We're talking about uh, firearms today, of course, because it is Firearms Friday. One of his most recent articles, Don't Blame the Main Shootings on Woefully Weak Gun Laws. Um, the yellow flag law that's in, not a red flag, it, it actually is a yellow flag law, they call it, uh, because I think predominantly it has some real protections and due process baked into it, which I think is good. But we're seeing, again, as we were talking about earlier, a failure of the system to kind of report a lot of the things that are going on. So I think there's more to blame here in a failure of government law enforcement and other things to enforce the laws that we have. But give us the give us the quick your quick thoughts here over the next nine minutes on the main shooting and how blaming the yellow flag law because they didn't have a red flag law, uh, how that would have changed anything in your mind or what's going on there. Well, it, what this looks like a situation where 
the yellow flag law could have been used, but was not. Exactly why it wasn't, not clear, but there were lots of uh, red flags, let alone <laughs> yellow flags um, in this case. Uh, going back months before the shootings, this guy's family was worried about him. They said he was increasingly paranoid. Uh, his friends and his fellow uh, service members reported erratic behavior, threats of violence, some actual scuffles. Um, when he was training at, uh, I think it's Camp Smith in, in New York State, um, he, he was uh, behaving so weirdly that he was reported, and this resulted in state police coming and, and ultimately taking him to um, a psychiatric hospital where he stayed for two weeks. Um, and he underwent an evaluation there, and he was released after the two weeks. So what that means is that at that point, at least, he did not meet the criteria for involuntary commitment. Um, but that's not the end of the matter, because under Maine's yellow flag law, you don't. the guy does not have to be uh, eligible for voluntary commitment. Um, this this uh, what this law relies on an earlier provision having to do with probable cause to believe somebody's mentally ill and therefore poses a threat to himself or others, and that results in protective custody. That was a pre-existing provision. What this law says in, is in those circumstances, uh, when you've taken somebody into protective custody, you can go to a, a medical practitioner uh, and say you think uh, this guy poses a likelihood of foreseeable harm. And, and the doctor, probably a psychiatrist, uh, uh, evaluates him. And if he says, yes, I do think that, then the police are required to go and get a court order, which is issued without a hearing. Um, and that lasts for up to two weeks. And the court order says you can't have guns. You can't buy guns. You can't own guns. Not just guns, actually dangerous weapons in general. Um, after two weeks, he gets a hearing, and then if the government can provide clear and convincing evidence that he poses a threat, the order can be extended for up to a year. Okay, That process could have been followed in this case. We know that local police were investigating. They got reports from the relatives. They got reports from his base in Maine. Uh, they got reports from at least one friend said he was threatening to shoot up the base. Um, but possibly because the relatives uh, indicated they thought they could handle this at some point, like, we'll take care of it, we'll get his guns. That was in one of one of the police reports. Maybe for that reason, they didn't actually use the law. So this is right. not an indictment of the law as being too weak. This is, if anything, an indictment of law enforcement failing to use the law. And by the way, you see the same thing in states with, with red flag laws. Red flag laws have fewer and weaker uh, procedural protections. But it's the same basic idea. Here's a guy we think is dangerous. We're going to take away his guns or, or and stop him from buying guns. Um, and you see, the, you know, in one state after another, you see it in New York, in California, in Colorado. These are all states with red flag laws, mass shootings. And in some cases, like in the, the, the massacre in Buffalo, you have what seemed to be, at least in retrospect, very clear red flags. Right. Right. And yet the law, law was not invoked. And so you can't say, oh, well, therefore we need stricter laws. You have to say, you know, why wasn't it invoked? And if that if there weren't good reasons, well, I guess we need to change our, our practices so right. that we are, are more careful in the future. Or you might wonder, in cases, in some cases, is more ambiguous. 
um, is this really a practical thing to try to do, to try to figure out who is actually um, a future mass murderer as opposed to just a troubled oddball? Because there are lots of those. Sure, sure. And lots of, lots, of, lots of those get subject to these orders. Almost none of them actually would have you know, committed mass murder. But maybe a few of them, this is the theory, a few of them might have. And that's, that's the whole operating theory. Yeah. And so uh, you can say, obviously, you can say law enforcement should be aware of the laws and use them when it, as appropriate. But it shouldn't be like using them willy nilly because, oh, we screwed up that last time. We didn't prevent that massacre. So from now on, if there's any any, uh, you know, suspicion about somebody, we're definitely going to seek an order because that errs in the opposite direction. And now you have a problem where lots of innocent people who actually don't pose a threat lose their second amendment rights right. right so you have you have to weigh these two things against each other and if you uh cast a wide net as gun control advocates tend to think the government should do uh the wider you cast the net the more innocent people who are you know totally harmless are going to lose their the, the right to arm self-defense and that's not a small thing to my mind um even if it is you know for only a year, right? Or in some cases, two years, whatever. The, you know, he gets he gets his gun rights back eventually, typically. Um, but that's that's a real problem, and I think the general debate about red flag laws overlooks the fact that there is a trade off. That even if you think that it's practical to identify mass murderers ahead of time and thwart them, um, that in trying to do that, you have to think about. What you know? Who are the innocent people who will be harmed by this policy? And I mean, and that's obviously that's why you have these procedural protections to begin with. Every right. state that has a red flag law has some kind of protections, right? It's just a question of whether are they rigorous enough. You know, uh, is the, is the standard of, of of proof rigorous enough? Um, are judges issuing uh, these initial orders without a hearing? at the drop of a hat and yes basically they are right that's a problem because um uh, typically basically judges will always issue these initial orders right because they're wor they're worried about being blamed if something horrible happens right so they they basically will always issue those orders given that fact it's absolutely important that you have a prompt hearing right then you have right? some due process that's the biggest yeah. part that's the biggest problem with many of these red flag laws is that they lack any kind of robust in some cases almost any due process depending on the state but in most cases any kind of robust due process where you get a chance to have a say to defend your rights yeah i mean you you what happens typically is that you've already lost your guns before you even get a hearing now you go into your hearing and you don't have, by the way, a right to a, you know, a taxpayer-financed attorney. So if you don't, can't afford an attorney, you are really shit out of luck because this is a complicated process and you really need legal representation. But you go into the hearing and at this point, the judge is saying, okay, this guy already has an order against him. Um, should I lift the order? That's right. what the judge... And right. the judge, again, is going to worry what might happen if I do that. Whereas if I just leave it in place... Right. The, the inertia is behind leaving the order in place. Right. That, and, the, and the judge's fears about what might happen if he lifts the order will encourage him. Now you have a strict you have to present more evidence at that point. The uh, respondent has a chance to actually respond. But still, I think the incentive is to maintain the status quo because it's presumptively protective. And so, you know, extend it for six months, extend it for a year. 
Um, and the, and in some states, the guy can come back and argue, well, now uh, I'm not a danger anymore, <laughs> or I never was a danger. You, you wrongly decided I was, but I definitely am not a danger. And then he has to prove he's not a danger, right? So it's, it's a, a very daunting process, and it's basically rigged against the gun owner right from the beginning yeah the rights um, holder and that's why, and that's why we, we really need to be cautious about looking to that as a solution and i i agree especially since we see that the track record on these instances is not great and we'll talk about that in the next hour but we're pretty much done here with jacob Sullum, reason magazine jacob as always it's a pleasure to speak with you thank you for coming on board uh keep writing my friend you're doing great work i love it uh, don't go any hold the line for just a second before I, I don't want to let you go here during the break. Uh, so hold on a second, folks. We're going to be back. The Michael yeah, Duke thanks. show. Common Sense Radio. Uh, Jacob is <clears throat> writing some great stuff and I'm going to let me drop his uh, let me drop his bio link here in the chat room from reason you can go to this page and not only read his bio but you could see everything that he has written um uh on reason recently and he's got some fantastic stuff on the second amendment this is totally out of left field jacob but it, it's i've been thinking about it every time i interview i keep meaning to ask i see you're in a gaming chair you got a gaming headset on are you a gamer too are you are you do you i am absolutely not <laughs> okay i was just curious I used to play years ago i used to play doom Oh man, and it and it kept me up all night. Oh and man, I, at a certain point, I was like, I was like, if I want to really get good at this, this is I have to just devote my life to it, and that's just too yeah. Much. So I, I haven't played video games much since since that that era, but the chair is comfortable. Oh, the chair is comfortable, and yeah. it's got like a little foot uh footrest and oh, yeah. you know they do uh, make good chairs yeah they do make good yeah. chairs that's for sure absolutely uh, i was just curious because i'm a big old nerd myself so i enjoy a little bit of that and i always like to find out if people if i if it looks like they might be a gamer i like to find out about it uh and get because there's a libertarian gaming group i didn't know if you knew that there's a libertarian gaming group that uh, it does i have to say it does not surprise me <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um well jacob keep uh keep up the good work my friend and thanks for uh, taking the time out I know I, I, you're a busy guy, and I appreciate you spending a little time with this little radio show. And uh, as always, uh, enjoy yourself. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again here sometime soon. You too. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Jacob Sellum, Reason Magazine, uh, here on The Michael Duke Show. All right. <clears throat> well, we have got uh, a full boat of stuff to talk about here in the next couple segments, and then we're going to finish up with Willie Waffle this morning. Uh, it uh, is going to be uh, good. Um, if the invocation of these laws can fail, asks Brian. Oh, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to restart the thing, aren't I? Um, if the invocation of these laws can fail, how can we count on the other side uh, for restoration? Asks Brian. I mean, I think that's a that's a definitely. A good question. How can we count on the other side to restore if they, and in fact, red flag laws, as I have said in the past, red flag laws are one of the only things where essentially um, you're guilty until you can prove your own innocence. There's no assumption of, there's no presumption of innocence on this. This is, you are guilty until you can prove your own innocence. And that is, well, problematic to say the least. Absolutely problematic to say the least. 
So uh, definitely a, a big question. And we're going to get into that here in the next segment as we break down what happened in the uh, um, in the instances with the main shooter, for sure. Um, all right, here's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> this is driving me bananas here. Uh, the lag, the absolute dragon lag. So we got we're going to rejoin the radio here in about uh, three and a half minutes. So I'm just going to take a quick uh, twenty second break here and reboot this. I'll be right back. You guys don't go anywhere. You'll see the blue screen here in just a second. Here we go. Took us uh, took us twenty two seconds. So that's not a not a bad thing. All right. Um, <clears throat> so coming up in hour two. Uh, we are going to talk about what happens in uh, what happened in Lewiston and in Maine. We'll talk about a new poll that talks about uh, what people really want with uh, with you know regarding guns. Do they want new laws or do they want better enforcement? Um, we'll talk a little bit about Ohio, which recently passed uh, permitless carry, and what does that mean for their statistics? Because all the all the people who were against it said it would become the wild west. People will die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and some new developments out of New Mexico as well, which you know that governor she's uh, she's been pretty quiet for a reason. She's been real quiet for a reason. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, as well this morning uh, here on the program. Oh, and we're going to open up the phone lines. We're going to open up the phone lines as well so that you can call in if you want and talk about any of these things. So uh, let's, uh, I guess we'll we'll get that going on first. 907-433-3150, 907-433-3150. If you'd like to sound off, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Feel free to smile and dial and get ready to uh, have a chit-chat here. Uh, this morning. Uh, that sounds like a Kit Kat. Everybody wants a Kit Kat bar. Um, been thinking about, Teresa says, I don't know what she's thinking about here. Ter- thinking about Illinois' condition one law prior to the 10-7 tragedy. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with, uh, Illinois' condition one law. Teresa, if you want to, you know, if you want to tell me what you, I'm interested to I'm interested. Tell me what you're talking about there. I'm not familiar with Illinois' Condition 1 law. Um, Jeannie says, uh, actually, I'm going to read that when we return to the radio because I think that's a it's a good place to start. Um, it's, a, it's a good place to start. And yes, each and every one of you show, should go back and read the decision by Judge Benitez because it is thorough and it is very, very interesting. Brian said, the sad thing is very few people actually read decisions they take the words of experts like Joey Behar, Joy Behar, who is the only thing she's an expert in is being a, uh, in my opinion. I mean, it's about the only thing that I'm excited about. All right, here we go. We're jumping back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thinking Radio. Let's do it. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. The Michael Duke Show. 
I have two guns, one for each of you. Firearms Friday. As Thomas Jefferson stated, it is the right and duty of the people to be at all times armed. To be at all times armed. Say hello to my little friend! I say that the Second Amendment is, in order of importance, the First Amendment. The right to keep and bear arms is the one right that allows rights to exist at all. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Not be infringed. Firearms. From my cold, dead hands. Friday. Oh, baby, yes. Firearms Friday. That one day a week we get a chance to talk about issues related to the Second Amendment and so much more. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the program. It is Friday. A special alert for those of you in the South Central area. Uh, We got a National Weather Service alert about freezing rain and snow possible for uh, Anchorage, the Matsu, all the way up into Willow and Talkeetna. Uh, definitely, if you're driving in this morning, you might want to take your time. I have not been on the roads today, obviously, uh, and uh, I'm, I can't give you personal reporting, but uh, they're saying that it uh, started raining last night and there could be a up to a tenth of an inch of ice on the road uh, for portions of Anchorage and the Matsu Valley uh, and the Susitna, uh, two t- uh, I'm sorry, one to two tenths of an inch of ice accumulation between Houston and the Talkeetna cutoff. Also, they say the most dangerous uh, or the most uh, slickest conditions, I guess I should say, are going to be on the Glen Highway near the Palmer Hay Flats, Meadow Lake to Point McKenzie, and in East Anchorage. They're expecting it to continue till about, uh, well, right around now, 7, 8 a.m. this morning. And uh, they said as the rain falls, it will likely freeze on the cold road, creating that icy glaze over the roadway. So pay attention if you're driving in this morning. Uh, Should be cleared up by mid-morning, midday, as the weather is expected to turn warmer. But, hey, still no snow, so I'm feeling good about it. I'll deal with that. I'm feeling good about it. Uh, hour two of the big radio show. We just finished up with Jacob Sullum from Reason Magazine uh, for Firearms Friday. A great interview. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast or watch it on the replay. Um, here on the program now, we are opening up the phone lines for hour two because we like to do Q&A, gun Q&A, uh, questions and answers. There's no such thing as a dumb gun question. If you want to talk about any of the subjects that we've covered here this morning, we'd love to hear what you uh, what you have to say. Feel free to feel free to throw us a line and, uh, and give us your thoughts again at 907-433-3150. Got some stories to go over and some other things, but I do want to uh, talk a little bit here. We were we finished up with Jacob talking about uh, red flag laws and how Maine doesn't have a red flag law, but it has a yellow flag law which is similar, although it offers more protections for the individual, uh, a more due process for the person whose guns are attempting to be taken away and removed. Jeannie in the chat room uh, says the main yellow flag law was picture perfect. However, it relies on people doing their jobs. All laws are dependent on people enforcing them. Writing them means nothing unless you're going to use it. 
And unfortunately, what we've seen in the past is a track record um, by governmental organizations and bureaucracies that it shows that these inst- that they don't necessarily have um, they don't have a great track record on this. I mean, we're going to talk here about the main shooting in just a second and some of the things that we're discovering now. Um, but the issue is, uh, it, this is, this is prevalent. Uh, we've talked about it. The Sutherland spring shooter in Texas, um, he was dishonorably discharged from the air force. He had some real problems and that was supposed to be reported to the NICS system. That's one of the things that you, you get a dishonorable discharge. You don't get your firearms rights, right? I mean, that's a, it's a deal that wasn't reported. And in fact, the air force was later on, um, uh, the Air Force was later on forced to pay $230 million to the victims and their families um, uh, from that shooting back in 2017. We've got the Parkland shooter, the Parkland shooter in Florida who shot up the Parkland High School. He had over 20, um, uh, he had over 20 incidents uh, or 20 interactions with local law enforcement. These were not friendly interactions, okay? Uh, He had over a dozen interactions with the federal law, FBI. Uh, And yet this guy was somehow able to go out there and pass through all the things and come up and do, you know, and you go all the way back to the Virginia Tech shooter. Uh, The guy there that back in Virginia Tech back in the day, he, uh, his uh, therapist had failed to um, report him as a potential danger. The Naval Yard shooter who had had interactions with the MPs before that and the, and still hadn't had his security clearance revoked. Uh, he had been gun discharges and all different. I mean, there's story after story after story uh, that there were plenty of, well, red flags, I guess, that these people were problematic. And it it just shows that, you know, what is the question here? Is the problem that we don't have enough gun laws? Or is the problem that we're not enforcing the laws that are already on the books? And I know that's a weak argument because I've made the argument before in this program that we really shouldn't have most of these laws. But, I mean, at least I'm going to make the argument that if the law is there and it could have potentially stopped it, then by God, they should have at least they should have at least enforced the law that they did have, whether the law was good or bad at this point. They don't use it as an argument to say we need more. A bombshell report by the Boston Globe uh, offers some confirmation about um, the main shooter. Um, the uh, turns out that he was involuntarily committed to an army hospital earlier this summer. Um, after that commitment, the army told uh, the shooter's commander that he would not have he he should not have a weapon should not handle ammunition or participate in live fire activity while on duty. However, that order does not appear to have had any effect on the shooter's ability to purchase it or use a gun as a civilian. In fact, the only reason the shooter was blocked from buying a suppressor, which there was another report, I don't know if you saw that, but that he had bought, he had paid for and gone through the process of uh, getting a suppressor. He'd fill out the forms and everything else. But when he went to actually transfer the device to him, um, he um, 
he self-reported it on the form. There was basically a question on the form that said, have you ever uh, uh, been, uh, a, I don't remember what the, what the verbiage is, but basically if you've been adjudicated, have you ever spent time in a mental facility kind of thing, mental health facility? And he self-reported that he had. He checked off the box. And the FFL said, I'm sorry, I can't transfer this to you and held it back. Um, he self-reported that if he hadn't been truthful, there was nothing to stop him from picking up the suppressor at the, at the gun store. Uh, under federal statute, involuntary commitment should have made the shooter ineligible to purchase or possess guns as well. But that involuntary commitment wasn't reported to anybody, apparently. Um, this is just one of the many shocking revelations that have come to light in the last uh, six days, seven days, eight days since he opened fire on that bowling alley in Lewiston and sparked criticisms about what authorities could have done to prevent it. Uh, among other disclosures that have come out, I mean, and this again, this goes back to Uvalde. They just stood around with their thumbs in their butts for weeks at a time. And I mean, I could just go through instance after instance, the Parkland uh, the school cop at Parkland who basically went outside, locked the doors and stood outside and hid. Right. I mean, just issue upon issue among other over uh, uh, shocking revelations um, is that uh, a warning from a reservist in September said that the shooter was, quote, going to snap and commis commit a mass shooting. The local sheriff's department failure to make contact with card. They, they failed to make contact with card. Uh, during two different wellness checks that they were supposed to do up with the, sh with the shooter. They didn't do that. And that all departments agreed to let the shooter's family lock away weapons rather, th rather than having law enforcement officials intervene. Um, that they just, they just missed the boat on this whole thing. One thing after another. Um, to make matters worse, the Globe reports that multiple law enforcement officials witnessed the deterioration of the shooter's mental condition firsthand because they served alongside him in the 3rd Battalion of the 304th Infantry Regiment of the National Guard. At least, this is from the Globe, at least four law enforcement agents, including the sheriff of the county that neighbors Lewiston, served alongside the shooter uh, during this year of tumult. Witnessing, witnessing him growing increasingly paranoid and, and to contemplate violence. According to police reports, Christopher Wainwright, the sheriff who oversees Oxford County and Matthew Noyes and of uh, Androscoggin County deputy were in the car with card that July night when he spiraled with paranoia, accusing the men of calling him a pedophile over and over. He told the two police officers and fellow reservists that he would take care of it. The it was never clarified, but the shooter's mania persisted through the night. His commander, Jeremy Reamer, also a police officer with the Nashua Police Department, alerted other police officers. So, I mean, they this was not like this was a surprise that this guy was off his rocker. And Tom Knightenden over at Bearing Arms, I'm sorry, Cam Edwards over at Bearing Arms repeats what the same thing that I've been saying. That it again, this failure to notify the uh, the army to notify federal authorities of his involuntary commitment would basically parallels what happened with the Air Force failure to communicate in Southern Springs back in 2017, 
Um, the Globe notes that even if the killer had been reported to Nix, that wouldn't have automatically prompted law enforcement to remove any currently owned firearms in, in his possession. But even after he'd been released from his involuntary commitment in New York, he displayed increasingly disturbing behavior in Maine. And apparently no steps were taken to commit him to a mental health facility closer to home or use the yellow flag law to temporarily bar him from possessing any firearms. There were multiple, multiple opportunities, multiple warning signs that this was going on. Um, and it just seems like this has become a more common occurrence than we've ever, uh, you know, that we ever expected. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So the question becomes, do we want new gun laws or do we want better enforcement of the laws we have? There's a new poll out about that. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Phone lines are open, 907-433-3150. The Michael Duke Show. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Yeah, Ford Hood as well. I mean, that guy was acting more and more erratically. He actually had SOA printed on his uh, business cards. And, I mean, he was a military officer, and nobody bothered to ask him what SOA meant on his business card. Soldier of Allah, right? That was, that was he had that print. I mean, nobody else noticed. He was becoming more and more radicalized. Um, it's, that's weird. It's just, yeah, the whole thing. It's, it's a whole thing. Jeannie says, that's a whole pile of pushwa. That's right, pushwa. Um, all right. Uh, Pouchoua, number three. Uh, Terry says, number three. I don't know what that means, but it's number three. Um, are you guys making a list of the weird things that I say? Is that what you're doing? What did I say? <laughs> Somebody said, what did, what did I say the other day that people are like, what? And I'm like, I don't know. It just, you know, kind of comes out sometimes. That stuff just kind of comes out sometimes. Uh, I know what I mean in my mind. My wife, sometimes she just shakes her head at me and goes, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Oh, man. Nothing like getting, what What else did I say? What was it? Skookum? Skookum, Chuck? Skookum? I said baked in a squat the other day, and somebody said, what? I said, you know, baked in a squat. Analysis paralysis. They just kind of, they, they, they get so, they start to circle think something so much, they can't get out of their own head, and they just, they, they you know. Baked in a squat. Uh, all right. Uh, I got one phone line on hold. And uh, the committee has been outed. Oh, hopium. Yeah, hopium. isn't. That's what it was. I said hopium. And they were like, what? I mean, you know, it's like unobtainium. Uh, you know, something made out of unobtainium. You're never going to get that. Hopium is kind of the opposite. Well, not. I mean, you hope you're going to get it. So it's hopium <laughs> as opposed to unobtainium. I don't know, man. Sometimes I just make stuff up. What are you going to do? Just, you know, 
makes perfect sense in my mind. That's probably why you don't want to look in there. Probably why you don't want to look in there. All the voices in my head, I couldn't decide which one to talk to this morning. Throne reading, pontification. Yeah, throne reading. That's the reading room, by the way. I'm going to go to the throne and the reading room, and I'm going to hang out for just a bit. Um, all right. Uh, let me go over here. we got two minutes. I'm going to go over to the phone lines and see what uh, who's here and who's joining us. I'm, it might be Fred. Let's see what's going on. Good morning. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Hey, uh, Mike. How you doing? It's Fred in Rhode Island. How you been? Hey, Fred. Good morning, my friend. I'm going to put you on hold here, and uh, we'll be back to you hey, here hey. in j- just a sec. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, I, I just want to. Are you getting extreme clicking noise on your end? I am not getting an extreme clicking noise on my end. I got this. I got this real annoying. It's sort of just it's kind of like a, kind of like somebody dragging their fingers across a blackboard in the reception. I'm gonna call you right back. Maybe it's just a connection. I'll call you right back. All right, thanks, Fred. I appreciate it. You give us a give us a shout here in a minute. Uh, we'll kick Fred to the curb there. We'll get started here in just a moment. We're about a minute out uh, over there. Um, uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we'll yep. We'll talk to Fred here in just a moment. Uh, th- throne reading and pontificating. Oh my God, that'll be all the thing. All the weird things I say. I mean, it'll be a book or something eventually, uh, right? Because I say so many strange and bizarre things. This is one of those things. I don't know what to do. Okay. Um, all the laws in the world are irrelevant if irrelevant if no one is enforcing them honestly. Well, it's true. And that, again, is part of the problem with this whole idea of an Irish democracy. We have kind of the same problem. I mean, if that's how they develop is in part because of all those things. Um, I hate it, says Patrick, when all the voices in my head go quiet. I don't know what they're planning. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Just because you're paranoid, my friend, doesn't mean that they aren't out to get you all those voices in there. It's going to make me crazy. All right, let's uh, let's get back to it. Uh, the Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like, share, follow, subscribe, do the whole thing. Let's uh, get to it. Here we go. What the hell is an assault weapon? What isn't? If I assault you with a penguin, doesn't that make it an assault weapon? Does this mean that if we hurt your feelings, you'd consider The Michael Dukes Show Assault Radio? (laughs) Okay, we can live with that. Here's Michael Dukes. I mean, seriously. What are you thinking? It's a penguin. It's a penguin. Oh, of all the voices to listen to, that was the one I listened to when I wrote that. Okay, here we go. Uh, We're jumping back into it here. Hour two of The Michael Dukes Show on this Firearms Friday continues. We got one line on hold. I believe that it is Fred in Rhode Island. Let's go over here and see if I'm right on this, and we'll get his thoughts on what's happening today. Good morning, my friend. What's uh, on your mind? How you doing, Mike? Yeah, that that fixed the problem, all right. With marbles going down the set of steel stairs. Okay, good, <laughs> good, good. Like. What's on your mind, sir? Well, here's here's my take on this whole thing up in Maine. You know they, uh, you know obviously, they 
he dropped the ball big time. I mean, they put all these they put all these wonderful laws in place that are supposed to prevent all these from happening. They never act on it. They never nobody lifted a finger to jump on it, even if it was by mistake. Even if it was, well, we did it, and it turned out that uh, you know we were mistaken and we didn't have to take the guns away. It's better to be safe than sorry, especially in a situation like that. Was screaming obvious that there was something wrong with this guy. I mean, that, right. that was that, that was just right negligence, absolute negligence, that that resulted in this happening. But yet, guess what? Guess what they're going to blame? They're going to blame the assault weapon, the weapon of war. That's the whole problem. We have these things out there in civilian hands, and they, they shouldn't be there. And yet, you know, when you stop and think about it. It really wasn't a, a complete civilian. The guy was military, right? The guy was military. Well, right. That's actually so a good not, point. And, 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 you know, they have far, far greater things than any AR-15 could do. So you sit there and say, well, you know, it, 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 once again, it's not the device. You know, it's kind of like it's an analogy I heard not too long ago. It makes perfect sense. You got a person who's the town habitual drunk, whatever town it may be, and he drives a particular type of a car, sports car or whatever or a big, big, big heavy sedan. And the guy drinks and drives all the time, and he's had numerous run-ins with the law and, you know, DWI and minor fender benders and whatnot because he drinks. So he goes out. Nobody does anything to try to get him off the road, get his license, you know, take his car away, suspend his driving privileges, put him under, put him under supervision, uh, you know, something like parole. And guess what? One day he goes out smashes into a school bus or he runs down a bunch of kids at a crosswalk or, you know, into pedestrians and kills a bunch of them. What do they blame? They blame the car. you got to take away these assault cars. We can't have these assault cars out there because somebody who is irresponsible enough to be drinking and driving all the time is responsible for the, you know, these, these, these actions, but it's the car's fault. Right. So you got to take away the cost. Well, Fred, this Does is that the, sense? Well, this is the same argument that I made. Remember what was it? Uh must have been just over just under 10 years ago because I remember it was just after I moved to Anchorage there was the news story about the guy who rented a pickup truck in New York and he ran down a bunch of kids yep. uh uh during Halloween. Well, you don't see anybody going after the rental company. You don't see anybody going after Ford Motor Company. It was a Ford pickup truck that he used. Nobody said anything about that. You know, the the guy who ran down the, the, the marchers in down in, I think it was Carolina or wherever, where he took the Dodge Charger and ran over a bunch of people. You don't see anybody going after Dodge Motor Company for that. I mean, it is. You're exactly right. Somebody gets drunk. Goes down, kills a bunch of people. They're not suing Jack Daniels. They're not suing Chevy. They're not suing whoever. But in these cases with the firearms, it's always the gun manufacturer's fault. And uh, again, it is uh, it's it's just it's a lack of accurate thinking on these things. And it's more the emotional aspect than the logical aspect. Yeah, it's the emotional aspect. Like, like I said before, there's a nefarious, there's a nefarious under, underlinging to this whole thing. So you really got to, really should start paying a little more attention to. Because one day somebody's going to drop a, somebody's going to, somebody's going to drop a, drop a dime. Somebody's going to, somebody's going to become an informant who's on the inside of this right now. And one day, one day they wake up and say, "This is just plain wrong," and they're going to, they're, they're going to let the, let, let the cat out of the bag. And then we're going to get to the bottom of what's really going on here, because there is something really going on here, as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, I mean, again, I would say I don't know if it's some big overarching conspiracy. I think you've got a lot of people who believe kind of in the same philosophy, you know, the narrative that I've talked about in the past, the what I call the narrative, which is the fundamental belief that the only way society can move forward is with the direct benevolent intervention of government. And uh, and of course, a lot of people who are on the other side of the spectrum, who are more individual, rugged individualists or conservatives, libertarians, they think that the government's job is to stay out of most things. And so they will oppose that. Well, the people who believe in the narrative, they think that they're right. They know that in their heart that they're right. And what they've got to do is they want to use government as a bludgeon and a force to make other people align with their beliefs, to come into the thing that government is the solution to all the problems. And to do that, they have to eliminate all these pesky people who don't want that. They have to eliminate their ability to defend themselves. So while I don't think it's an overarching, some kind of sinister, you know, twirling the mustache plan, I think you've got a lot of people that have the same belief systems and they see that anybody who can defend themselves from government overreach is part of the problem and they want to disarm them. Uh, I, I think that I truly believe that that's what the, that in their oh, hearts, yeah. they, they believe that. Yeah, you're right. I, I just had one other thing, you know, the other day, which kind of threw a little bit of a different light on that situation up in Maine as well. There's another radio show that takes place over here on the weekends. The guy's really good. He runs a, he runs a gun shop and he has his own little program on the weekends. And what he had mentioned, I don't know where he got his information from, that if there's any truth to it, it makes it make, falls in perfect perfect uh, alignment with what's going on. At the either bowling alley that he shot up, or this bar, or both, were gun-free zones. Were posted as no weapons allowed in here. Not if there's any truth to that, but if there's any, if there is anything to it, then you know that definitely puts a whole different whole different shade of light on the situation. Well, yeah, he scoping things up yeah. ahead of time. As Dr. Lott has pointed out, and we just had him on the program here a little bit ago, 95% of these shootings take place in gun-free zones. And in many cases, in many readings of manifestos and, and publicly available, their, their, their blogs or their journals or whatever, many of them say um, that they go and they, they scope out these places and they avoid the places that has... Uh, either not a gun-free zone or armed security. The guy who shot up the Dollar General, he'd actually gone to another Dollar General beforehand, but there was an armed security guard there, so he moved on to another one. It happens all the time where people are unable to defend themselves from this situation. I mean, the bartender at the bar, that's a tragic story. He attempted to take on the shooter. He took out the butcher knife from behind the bar, I'm assuming the ones that they used to cut the lemons and the limes with, and he went after the shooter to try and stop him and was killed. If he had had a gun behind the bar, been able to defend himself, maybe it would have turned out differently. Maybe not. But at least he would have had a fighting chance instead of a throwaway chance at that point. Absolutely right. Absolutely correct. You know, and you know, it makes sense too because Maine, kind of like Alaska, it's a gun-friendly zone. I mean, everybody carries if there's constitutional carry, and I'm surprised that no one was armed. So the only thing that makes sense is it had to be they had to be gun-free zone. Yeah. No, absolutely. Not one person in either one of those establishments was armed. Right. Which makes me, again, goes back to one of my previous comments that I made years ago that pretty much if you're around me, you're not in a gun free zone. I don't care what the sign says. I don't care what the deal is. If it if you're around me, because I know that those places 
uh, have a much higher incidence and a much statistically a much higher po- probability of something happen uh, happening at those locations. So just be assured that if you're around me, you are not in a gun free zone. You know, that's pretty much uh, what my belief is. Uh, I would much rather pay the fine or uh, be, you know, be trespassed from a location um, if they discovered that I was armed rather than being unarmed and having to deal with a situation like that and being able only to use my body because I'm old and fat. You know what I mean? I don't want to necessarily have to deal with that uh, without having an <laughs> equalizer in that regard. You're not alone. <laughs> yeah. So, All right, Fred. Well, hey, thank you for your call. I appreciate you calling in today. You, you take care, Mike. Have a good week. All right. Fred from Rhode Island, our weekly caller. I don't know how he even dis- – we should ask him one day, how did you discover the show? Because he's over in Rhode Island. I mean, how does he even – I mean, it's crazy. So we were talking about what do you want? Do you want new gun laws or do you want better enforcement of the current laws? Of course, one of the arguments from the pro-gun side has been, hey, we've got laws on the books. Why aren't we using them? Uh, when every instance of these things happening creates a whole slew of people calling for more laws, which um, I don't know what what new laws. The only new law that would have stopped this, I guess, in that regard, would have been a full ban on AR-style rifles. Uh, although, I mean, how long ago did this? I, I don't even know. I don't even know. He obviously was able to buy guns. He was obviously able to get ammunition. He was obviously able to do all these other things. Um. So a new Rasmussen survey conducted in the aftermath of this shooting in Maine substantiates what the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms has been saying for years. Americans think law enforcement of existing gun laws should do would do more to prevent gun-related violence than passing new laws. This is something that people have argued on the, on the gun side for years. Uh, and the CCRKB uh, is definitely one of those uh, one of those organizations. Um, the uh, Alan Gottlieb, who is the uh, CCRK, uh, CCRKBA is part of the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, Alan Gottlieb said Rasmussen did this survey after the main tragedy, so it was definitely on everyone's mind. And uh, it, said, it turns out that 50, uh, 57% of voters say stricter enforcement of existing laws would be more effective, while only 30% believe passing new laws would do more. We're winning. In that regard. All right, we got to go. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. Okay. Uh, Yeah, we had to uh, to go there. Um, Okay. Let me go back over to the chat room to see what you guys have to say. Uh, What else was I going to talk about? Um, Oh, the violent crime rates in Ohio. Guess how, guess what happened there? Last June, they became the 23rd state to have permitless carry. Uh, And of course, all the gun control activists and the politicians said, well, it's going to be, it's going to be more dangerous. It's going to be bad. One of the state representatives even claimed that Republicans have made it crystal clear that they value the approval of the gun lobby more than the lives of Ohioans and the police officers who protect our community. Well, the stats from the FBI, the Uniform Crime Report, are now publicly available. And what happened? Well, um, no, none of those things actually came to pass. In fact, overall violent crimes uh, were down in Ohio and in the U.S. 
accordingly, both both to both Ohio and the U.S. as a whole. But Ohio saw a staggering 7.5% decrease from the year previous, while the U.S. saw a 1.6% decrease. So uh, almost a almost a six time, uh, five or six time uh, times the decrease in Ohio, as you saw across the U.S. Ohio had 6.1 homicides per year, uh, per 100,000 per year last year, compared to 7.5 in 2021 and 7 in 2020. And so they're, they dropped, they actually dropped below the national per homicide average as well. So overall crime, homicide, violent crime, they, the drop is far outpacing the national average on this. And this is, you know, but remember the same, if you are old enough to remember the debate that went on in Florida, Florida became one of the first states to institute a statewide concealed carry bill. That was a very easy to get concealed carry bill. And you had people like the Brady Bunch and uh, Handgun Control Incorporated and a bunch of other people saying it would be blood in the streets in Florida. It would be the new opening of the OK Corral. It would be horrific and it would be bad and everything. I mean, it was, you know, all, all bad all the time. And what happened? Crime plummeted in, in uh, Florida. And in fact, they were having many instances of uh, tourism crime where they would recognize a rental car and they'd carjack you. And I mean, it was horrific. Uh, but after that started, mm, not so much. In fact, crime in Florida cratered over the next few years. So it was not the gunfight at the OK Corral scene that they were looking at. Um, ironically, in Ohio, the one uh, the one blip on the radar in this was that uh, in Cleveland and in Columbus, it was a different story. Murders in Columbus or in Cleveland have increased uh, by almost 14 percent, while Columbus had seen a 9.6 percent jump in homicides that year. That's because the anti-gun politicians in those cities have uh, continued to hold different laws than what the rest of the state sees, <laughs> disallow a lot of these things. Oh, man, it's uh, I mean, this is like a blue. It's not a I guess I wouldn't say blue state, but it's a blue problem. This is a blue problem. Um, What was the other Gallup poll? There's another Gallup poll that showed that 49 percent of Democrats want a handgun ban. That was uh, <laughs> that is definitely definitely not what you want to hear. Uh, Forty. Nine percent of Democrats say they want a handgun ban uh, because, again, I think it plays into the narrative. It plays into the narrative. Now, most Americans um, do not want uh, most Americans do not favor a handgun ban. Overall, only 27 percent of Americans believe that there should be a ban on handguns. Uh, Americans believing guns make home more safer are actually outdoing those think that it makes more more dangerous. Sixty four percent think that guns make uh, homes safer. Uh, versus uh, 32% thinking that make it more dangerous, which is a complete inverse uh, from 2000. 2000, it was almost flipped on its head. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting to watch. You can see this new, um, where is this thing? Rasmussen poll. Let me copy this link here and you can post it. You guys can go read the stats on this Rasmussen poll because it's uh, it's uh, it's interesting. 
here is the here is the latest right here. Uh, here is the latest right here. UCRs are gold, says uh, Jeannie. Yeah, the uniform crime reports are. Uh, I mean, they're amazingly full of facts. <laughs> Which, again, going back to what Benitez says, four hundred and sixty-four deaths with uh, rifles, all rifles. And then pulling out the statistic of that means 0.0000186% of crimes were committed uh, with those long guns, which meaning that 99.9999% of our lo- it's lawful. It's <clears throat> facts count, folks. F your feelings. Facts count. That's kind of what somebody said once. <laughs> Maybe it was me. All right, here we go. We gotta, I got to change the light. We're going to jump into it. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Let's get to it. All right. Hey, uh, 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 the weekend. Yes, please bring it. Bring it on with great alacrity. Schnell. Mock Schnell. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm ready. Uh, Willie Waffle, WaffleMovies.com comes in every week to uh, give us the full weekend movie reviews and all that kind of jazz. So we start with him right now. Hello, my friend. How 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 are, how are you on this beautiful, beautiful well, I'm feeling Friday? good, man. The the weekend cannot come fast enough. No, it can't. It really cannot. I am so ready for it. You have no idea. All right. Um, so uh, let's just let's crack on, shall we? Let's crack on. Yeah. Uh, see if we can get it done. Uh, we'll start off with um, the court versus Robert De Niro. Uh, no, it's Robert De Niro versus his ex-assistant. This is a behind-the-scenes peek that you probably didn't necessarily want to uh, know about. Yeah, not of De Niro, not of anybody that you actually like on this planet. So, right. yeah, th- this is this is Robert De Niro. Uh, he's he's had this long running feud uh, with his ex assistant. Now, um, you know, she was fired from his company, and uh, you know, shortly after, uh, she filed this this court case alleging, you know, bullying, sexual harassment, forcing her to work too much, uh, you know, and and now all this testimony is coming out in court. So, like, you know, she's she's testifying that, you know, she that Robert De Niro would ask her to scratch his back and she'd offer a back scratcher and he'd say, no, I like the way you do it. Uh, he would often call her the B word to her face on a regular basis. He would joke around about his Viagra prescription and how maybe she could get impregnated via artificial insemination by another male employee at the company. Now, on the flip side, the De Niro has accused her of stealing money. There was a bunch of trips and a Louis Vuitton bag and some fancy dinners and iPhones that suddenly were rung up on company credit cards that they didn't know about. Um, you know, she was allegedly binge watching Friends all day on Netflix. Oh. She was stealing his frequent flyer miles, according to De Niro, so she could take fancy trips and uh, and and did not get along with his his girlfriend. And uh, so they they've been going back and forth, and and uh, you know members of of De Niro's entourage have been uh, testifying this week after De Niro testified on Monday and Tuesday, and and I'm just gonna say it was so entertaining because 
it was everything you expected. Robert De Niro is just fed up with everything. He is grumpy as grumpy can be. Right. He, he shouldn't even be in a courtroom. He's just acting like De Niro and figured he can get away with anything. <laughs> this just sounds so tawdry and, and petty at this point. Oh, it I'm is. just like, oh my God. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what, what I, no she, one wins. What's she trying? She's just trying to get something out of this. She trying to get money or is he trying to get her arrested or what's the deal? Well, you know, he 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 was coming after her for some damages. Uh, you know, she's coming after him for unlawful, uh, unlawfully, uh, you know, dismissing her employment. Um, you know, feels that there was supposed to be a severance, and there was some sort of argument during that time where it all fell apart. And they said, "Well, we're not going to pay you," and she said, "Yeah, you are." You know, so yeah, it's it's just it's it's everybody fighting over money and trying to hurt each other. And, uh, you know, no one, no one's going to really win. No right, one's really right. going to win. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. I'm not going to lose any sleep over that one way or the other. Um, although I might lose sleep over this because even I, as a kid, uh, occasionally watched Sesame Street. But now we're getting Sesame Street reimagined, which in this day and oh. age just sends chills down my spine. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is horrible. I, I read this and I had to stop. And just put my phone down for a minute because I'm like, I'm not ready to deal with it. And here it is. Yes, Sesame Street starting in 2025. They're going to drop their current format. And according to uh, what they're going to be doing, they're going to focus on, quote, longer story-driven segments and put a new animated series in the middle. So, like, they'll have two 11-minute segments that are, quote, more dynamic and sophisticated stories. And for kids, for, in the for, middle, for K through yeah, six, for kids. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then every episode, uh, well, then then they'll insert like a five minute uh, animated uh, short that they're hoping will turn into an entire half hour show on its own, and it's going to feature the stories of what happens in one, two, three Sesame Street, the apartment building that's right there on the street that you know a lot of the folks live in, and we we see the stoop all the time. But now they're going to take us inside into the wild, crazy things that happen there. And uh, they're going to have every week a signature song that they hope will be sung by famous people. Uh, they're going Ugh. to make it um, more interactive in the sense that characters will now break down the uh, third wall and start talking to the audience and addressing oh. them directly. Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. But it's now here's the catch. Nobody owns this new season yet. Uh, next year is going to be their final year in their deal with HBO Max or Max, as it's now called. So whoever picks this up is going to get the new season with an entirely new Sesame Street. Which is an unknown quantity, which makes you wonder yeah. whether anybody's going to want to pick it up. 55 seasons, though. 55 yeah. years. That's a... That's quite... I guess that's quite an accomplishment, but, I mean, just in this day and age, Willie, I can't imagine... The you know we're gonna go inside one two three and see what happens and it's is Ernie and Bert are they really just roommates are you know are the other, <laughs> you know all these other in, you know I mean just this I could just see it can't you I mean is it me or can you just see uh, it? you know yeah yeah I just you know I I just I like what they do now I mean does it mean now that my kid's not gonna learn how to count you know I mean just things like that yeah I mean, you know, how are they gonna incorporate those traditional Sesame Street elements 
when they're trying to make it more character driven and make I it mean, a like, story. You know, yeah, I, like these kids have got an attention span enough for that. I mean, these were like yeah. these, these are like mostly like four or five minute segments. You know, ABCs, one, two, threes. This is how it goes. I can't imagine that this. Well, I, I just don't see anything good happening from this. But that's just me. Again, I'm a grumpy old man. That's probably why. Well, you know, and the whole idea of breaking down the wall and having the characters address the the audience. I mean, like what, like like Oscar the Grouch is going to turn into you know Jim from the Office, and he's going to make little funny yeah, faces or something. Exactly. Now, I mean, like you know, yeah, what's that all about? Well, it's a sad. I mean, again, it's hard to see your hard to see your heroes die or your you know your childhood you know come to an end that way. But I guess that's what I I felt that way after Captain Kangaroo died. You know what I mean? That was like that was yeah, a, that was a big thing. All right. Uh, well, let's move on to um, anything else. Was there anything else that I missed or that you, you missed? There's a late breaking story that happened over the past couple of days that I find very very interesting. Um, HBO got caught. It turns out that HBO had a whole crew of staffers who had phony Twitter accounts and and they would have phony profiles and they would attack critics who said bad things about their shows. Oh, and geez. so, yes. So, you know, if you were a critic and you didn't like their new show, you know, somebody in the comment section of wherever you wrote, whatever website or whatever, would would, would harass you and hound you. If if it was Twitter, they'd respond to you on Twitter. And, uh, you know, and this all came out because, again, you know, a wrongful termination suit by a former employee who brought this up. And and at first HBO was kind of like we were really focused in on the the uh, on we were focused on the wrongful termination suit. Um, that's really what counts here, not this right. other story. Don't pay and, attention and finally, to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, it got so bad on Thursday that that they just had to say, "Yeah, we did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah we did it. We did you it. caught us. We're we're, we're we're kind of ashamed of it. Sorry. Maybe, you know, but you know, it's so, it's so funny though because you know, I I still remember back in the day when Sony Pictures was creating fake movie critics to promote movies of theirs that stunk. Uh, and it was this big, massive outrage. This thing this week is like, yeah, I'm surprised nobody else is doing it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. Well, big shocker. I mean, the Internet's not real. That's shocking. Um, exactly. <laughs> all right, let's uh, get over to the streams. Uh, we got four. I'll let you take them in whatever order you want to take them. I mean, bad to bad to worse, worse to good. I mean, good, whatever you think. All right, I'll go bad to good. And bad, I really wanted this to be one of the good ones, but all the light we cannot see. Uh, a new Netflix series, a, a story about how uh, it, during World War II, you know, the uh, World War II is kind of coming towards an end. And uh, we, we find this uh, small little town in, in Nazi-occupied France. There's this uh, blind French girl who is uh, broadcasting radio programs to try to you know keep up the spirits and keep fighting against the Nazis. And the Nazi soldier who's tasked with finding her and ending these and, of course, meeting her and finding out who she is. And, and then, you know, he realizes we're all people, too. <laughs> and yeah, we're all supposed to learn something about each other. We're supposed to care. There's all sorts of stories about what her family has gone through. I mean, you know, I don't want to minimize the stories and minimize the plight, but you know, it, it really just kind of feels like there's not enough real complexity or storytelling to draw me in and make me care about anybody here. 
So I'm going to be like one and a half waffles. Oh, man, that's tough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because I could see some opportunity here. I mean, I, I could see some backstory, especially if they're going to become love interests where, you know, now she's Vici French. Now she's a collaborator. I, could, I mean, I could see all these different kinds of yep. things that could happen there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's sad when you've got a great story idea or something like that in a backdrop and it's not quite executed the way you think it should be. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's based on a very well-known book, and I have a feeling the people who who love the book are going to be very unhappy with these four episodes. Oh, man. <laughs> all right, so that's all the light we cannot see on Netflix. One and a half waffles. What's next? Now we're moving forward to what happens later. It's a new rom-com from Meg Ryan. Okay. Yeah, she also she helped write it and direct it. Uh, stars her and David Duchovny. They're they're two former uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, two former lovers who find themselves twenty five years later stranded by a snowstorm in the same small airport. And of course, they're going to talk about what happened back then. They're going to talk about what they've been doing since then. And can talk and talk. And if it was better dialogue, I'd be very very excited. But it's very pithy. It's very phony. Uh, it's very stiff. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to get kind of cute with, with how maybe mystically the airport's trying to get them together and fate is trying to bring them back together. And it just it just doesn't fly and it's not exciting and it doesn't it doesn't warm my heart. I'm going two waffles. Well, that's higher than I expected based on what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you can't deny that David Duchovny and Meg Ryan know what they're doing. Right. And, you know, you know, and, and they've got some nice chemistry and, and, and they keep this thing afloat the best they can. What, what do you mean they keep this thing afloat? She wrote it the best they can. You know, she wrote <laughs> you know, it and directed just, it. I mean, you know. It's, you know. Yeah, well, and it, it's also kind of like, I think if I remember correctly, it's also partially based on a play. So, you know, like she wrote it in the sense that there was her and the the playwright right. kind of combining forces to turn it into a movie. She wrote the uh, screenplay, you know, and, the movie screenplay, right, of the same thing, yeah. Well, and, and yeah, and she, she helped direct it, uh, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I wanted more flair from her as a director, something yeah. more interesting. I mean, you know, if there's somebody who knows romantic comedies inside and out, you think she would see some new angle or something yeah, special I that we haven't seen before? I haven't seen Meg Ryan in forever, so that would be interesting to watch. All right. Uh, yeah, well, she hasn't been. It's, I think it's been like six or seven years since she's even done anything. Yeah. Maybe eight years. All right. What's next? Yeah. Well, then we have Till Murder Do Us Part, the new Netflix docuseries <laughs> about one of the. And, and this is a very, very tawdry, tawdry tale. I remember this. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's a true story. Back in 1985, uh, these two students from the University of Virginia, uh, one, the, the boy, he's kind of a little bit younger. He is uh, a German. Uh, well, his, his family was like German diplomats. And, you know, he's in the States and going to school. And she is from, you know, a fairly well-off family. Right, right. And uh, she, hates, she hates her parents with a passion and um, her and the boyfriend are accused of setting up and murdering them. More, more, more to the point, she is accused of convincing him and cajoling him and manipulating him into murdering the parents. Right. And uh, you know the whole court case plays out. And you know what? What? Why this is kind of becoming uh, another story now is that during the trial. Her own stepbrothers, the the sons of the the stepmother that was murdered, felt that she was there. Oh. That you know, it wasn't that that the story that she's telling that 
you know, she kind of got the kid revved up and he went down and did it himself and she just covered for him. They seem to think that's baloney. And now here we are years later and the, the accused, uh, the, this uh, Jan, uh, Jan uh, Soaring, if I remember correctly, Jan Soaring, uh, he is trying to say that, yeah, she, 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 you know, this, the story I told is just, totally true. I just took the fall yeah. for her. Is it? All I right. took the fall for her basically. Negative, yeah. uh, negative one to four waffles on that one. We're running out of time here. I'm at two and a half waffles. I think it's pretty interesting. All right. So <clears throat> a minute, what happens later? I'm sorry, Priscilla, Priscilla Presley story yep. written, directed by Sophia Coppola. Give it to me. And that's what makes it so awesome, you know, and, and this young gal, this Kaylee Spaney, who plays Priscilla Presley, you know, the story of being you know, a 14 year old girl who meets Elvis Presley while he's serving in the army in Germany. And of course, you know, that we, we know that they, they fall in love, that he, he marries her, brings her back to the United States. And she is there as his life falls apart and has to deal with all of that in front of her. Uh, great performances from her, from Jacob Alordi, who plays Elvis. Uh, you know, and, and I think Spaney just really grabs you with all the growth that this young woman goes through in a very, very short time. Three waffles for Priscilla. Okay, sounds good. Folks, that means we're out of time. We will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Sorry, I didn't mean to rush you on that, but we were... We no, were totally hit, cool. We were I, I went hard. too long. Um, yeah, I went too no, long. No, I, I, you know, I'm sure my wife will love this. I, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of blah on, you know, I like Elvis songs and stuff like that, but I just, you know, the whole royalty, rock and roll royalty thing, Priscilla and the story. I'm sure it's a lovely story. I just, you know, I just, for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola, I mean, again, talking about royalty, that's movie making royalty there, right? Oh, and, and she's just, I think she's fabulous. I mean, you know, uh, she she has grown into a wonderful filmmaker uh, equal to her father, frankly. Uh, and, you know, and she just really understands how to, how to frame characters and the stories that they're going through and capturing the emotions and capturing the changes. And, and, and I think that's what this movie really is all about, is, is that idea that, you know, Here's this young kid, you know, she thinks everything is awesome. Everything's perfect and working out. Prince Charming has shown up. He's Elvis Presley. And then, you know, the reality that she faces, you know, the, the darkness of his life, the drug use, and uh, how she's trying to protect her kid from it, how she realizes they got to get away from it. She's got to get divorced and, and, you know, facing that challenge. And I think, you know, it's it's really amazing to see her, you know, growing again from, from basically a Star Trek, a starstruck kid to, you know, a woman who becomes much more adult than Elvis, even though they're much different in age. Right, right. No, I mean, it's kind of a tragic story uh, in many ways. I'm familiar with it, but, you know, yeah, Yeah. but uh, interesting to see. Okay, next week, what are we going to watch? That would be The Marvels. The Marvels. All right. We'll see. That's, yeah. That's the triple, it's, it's right? Time that's for the, Captain Marvel. Yep. That's the three, the three Marvel ladies that are going to be. That'll be interesting. Have you watched the new season of Bosch yet? I have Bosch not. Legacy. I Bosch need Legacy. to catch up. I, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I got to get caught up. <laughs> I will. Okay. I will say I've been watching a series called The Irrational on Peacock. Which has got the guy Ooh. from um, Law and Order? Oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. So good. I, I'm so pissed that they're only dropping an episode oh. at a time because I could watch them all. They're that good. They're very enjoyable. Well, it's 
it's also airing on NBC every week. Yeah, uh, because so, that was that was one of their series that they kind of put into place uh, because of the strike. Yeah. So you know, yeah, yeah, you're 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 held to the fact that they are they're only be. doing one a week on NBC. Yeah. All right, Willie. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate it, folks. I gotta go. We'll see you on Monday. I hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy yourself. Be careful out there with all that water and ice and snow. terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show